Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and senior editor at IndieWire, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dan Thompson, the proprietor of Thompson on Hollywood and IndieWire's editor-at-large. So, Anne is out at the Carlo Vivari Film Festival this week, seeing a whole lot of different kinds of movies out there, and she also spoke with a filmmaker and actor who you may have heard of before. Mel Gibson was here uh, getting a big uh, uh, award for, for life achievement, and he did a master class, and he sat down with me in a very noisy cafe, unfortunately, for the sound. Um, but I wanted to sort of dig into, you know, what he's doing, how he feels about, um, you know, his lack of, support from the studios in terms of making movies again as a, as a director and you know why is he doing these sort of B movies and he was I asked him about you know his reaction to what Shia LaBeouf is going through and Robert Downey Jr. who's a good friend of his and a big supporter of his uh, how he sort of turned his life around and he gave some very revealing answers one of which was that he's absolutely digging in his heels and not going to fund his own movies again the way he did with Apocalypto and the Passion of the Christ, and he's very stubborn about that, and seems to want the studios to sort of support him. And uh, but he may, in fact, you know, raise money overseas. Uh, these are big budget period pieces. He wants to do a Viking thing, and he may end up on TV. He may end up going to cable television. What else is new? Right. Another another director yeah. fleeing to the, yeah. to the dark side of television. These sort of conversations about directors sort of having weird identity crises, you know, there's certainly nothing new. We've talked about Steven Soderbergh doing these TV projects. And just this last week, so, so Christopher Nolan writes this piece in the Wall Street Journal basically saying that there's this bleak future for the industry about movies being shown in theaters. And No, no, he was actually being relatively optimistic, I mean, uh, in a way. I mean, he's he's really... He's really decrying, he's always been opposed to 3D, and he's one of the filmmakers who insists on shooting in 35 because, um, if not, you know, IMAX, because, you know, he wants the highest possible quality. I think he's saying that, that technology is still going to be uh, the filmmaker's friend. But I think the real question that he doesn't answer is that the studios are supporting the big tent poles. You know, he is supporting scale and scope. He is going with big uh, IMAX uh, shooting and everything. He's, he's going along with that. He hates 3D because he thinks it's fake ticket gouging. There's another thing that was online, this study, that was showing that what's interesting is that the studios have certainly been keeping the numbers up until recently, actually, and the summer numbers are down. But... They've been keeping the numbers up, but but it's been fake. It's been via 3D. It's by premium ticket pricing. And if you look at actual admissions, 
there's a real serious downturn going on. There really is competition for for eyeballs and, and you know, the studios are not, I mean, this is what I was writing about in my book. I mean, the studios, the future is not rosy in terms of the numbers, but Nolan wasn't being so. so well, he does say that there is a bleak future that the industry is headed towards. He's just saying that it's not going to be like that indefinitely. He's being optimistic because he's in a certain position where he can be optimistic. I mean, Nolan is a filmmaker who's done just quite well for himself. Change. Yeah, yes. and then you look at people like, Mel Gibson, who, there are some other reasons why he's struggling. He's got, years, no, course, his but. problems, you know, did he prove himself as a, the guy won the Oscar, the Best Picture Oscar and the Best Director Oscar for Braveheart. I mean, the guy is, there's no question that he's an extraordinarily good filmmaker. The question is for the studios is do they want to back him at this time? You know, they're, they're punishing him. He's being ostracized on some level. Or he may believe. That, that they don't want to do the kinds of films that he wants to do, which is also true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the reality is probably a synthesis of those two things. You know, I did an interview with Richard Linkletter this week. It ran in two parts. In the second part, we really didn't talk about his new movie, Boyhood, opening this week. And we more focused on kind of the problems of the marketplace today. Mainly, you know, that studios are not interested in, in you know, smaller spends and, and kind of experimenting with some talented filmmakers you know that that's you know, what Soderbergh's argument is and that's what makes him so angry that if they could they could take the budget of one behemoth tentpole and apply it to a whole range of of young filmmakers and he said if he if it were him he would be giving all of these exciting filmmakers out there chances to prove themselves the way Nolan was given a chance to prove himself back in the day and and they are not they're not they're taking you know but we've talked about this before they're taking the Gareth Edwards of the world and sticking them right into Godzilla. Right, and that, that's also frustrating as well. It's like, do we really want them making these kind of movies? But, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to contrast these sort of discussions with the, the focus on the movies that you're seeing out in Carlo Vivari, you know, something like The Tribe, which Draft House Films will be releasing later this year and wants to, you know, do some kind of an awards campaign for, or, or Leviathan, this brooding Russian masterpiece of a film. What's the are, likelihood that the Russians are going to actually submit that film? It's so negative. Um, it sounds to Russia me like they, they're not supportive of it at all. So right, that I was think my it impression. Is a, a real question. I look at those sort of movies and, and, and I wonder, you know, if you're an American I can't imagine they would submit The Tribe either, by the way. I mean, well, there's it's, an, so it's an interesting awards conversation to be had about something like The Tribe. I mean, draft That's not going to play for the Academy. So, exactly. so that, I, I mean, that's another way for me to sort of catch up here and, and see some of the films that might be uh, submitted by the, by the different countries, you know. Um, but, the, but what's interesting about the Czech uh, film industry is, is that they, 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 they used to have like 40% of of the market here and it's down to about 10%. I was talking to some people about the idea of, you know, if you look at the different countries, which are the countries that are doing it right in terms of how they finance it and support their filmmakers because they have, you know, vibrant and effective, um, you know, film, film industries and which are the ones that seem to support the wrong films, you know, <laughs> or the films that are just so rigorously local and small and personal that they wouldn't travel. And Czechoslovakia seems to be a little bit in that category. Right. Norway, for example, or, or Sweden or Denmark or, or uh, Belgium. Uh, these are very, uh, or, or South Korea. These are countries that are vibrant right now. So maybe Mel Gibson's real solution is to go abroad. 
you know, as he has. I think so. I think so. But he, I mean, it's interesting to, to me that it, it, he should be able to raise the kind of financing that he wants. He has his own foreign sales company, Icon. He, he, he could do it if he wanted to. Um, I, it's, it, it felt to me like he, he wants big budgets and he wants the studios. He, he needs support emotionally from the studios. That was my read. You know, what's interesting about that is that the studios could probably benefit from supporting more people who have this kind of aggressive sensibility. I mean, with Mel, the aggressive sensibilities is one we know all too well. But I mean, outside of that, I mean, just in terms of telling stories that are incredibly involving and, and more exciting than the alternative, which is, is, is a blander approach. They like big scale and scope and period, and they like... They, I mean, they Gladiator or, 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 you know, this movie Exodus is coming up from Ridley Scott. I mean, there's no reason why Mel couldn't deliver, you know, a Viking picture like nobody's ever seen. It would probably be the bloodiest thing that's ever been made, and audiences would, would eat it up. I mean, he, he's nothing if not the kind of guy who just grabs everybody by the ears and makes them watch. Well, I have, a, I have somewhat higher hopes than I did the last time we touched on the problems with, with Hollywood because... I was really let down by the dominance of Transformers. Not that it surprised me, but it's something where why are we even doing this if, if everybody's just going to flock to this one stupid movie? But now, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is opening this weekend, and it's tracking to make something like $60 million, which is not too shabby for something of this nature. I thought it was excellent. Me too. I, mean, I loved it. I really loved it. What they did when they when they brought in Matt Reeves was they picked somebody who could handle you know, the whole uh, range of, of big scale and scope as well as an intimate uh, family story, which is which is what this is, a survival story for two sets of families. And I think he pulled that off. There's some there's one shot in the movie, one incredible shot where the bad uh, ape, the warrior ape, Koba, is swirling around in a gun turret on a, on a, on a tank, you know, with, with a 360-degree thing that is just one of the best shots I've seen all year. It's a great shot, and, you know, Matt Reeves is the director of this movie, and he had another great shot with a, a unbroken take inside a car when it flipped over in uh, his uh, Let the Right One In remake, Let Me In, so I wasn't surprised to see that kind of formalism come into play here. What's exciting about it is to see it done on this kind of blockbuster spectacle scale. You know, like this movie, some of the reviews I've seen are, are a little too hard on it for having a thinner storyline than the previous one. I think it's not as good as the previous one, I would say. I but find it to be very- much more accomplished, actually. And, and part of the reason is because, yeah, the the politics, the themes are kind of dumb and obvious. That's okay because there are some audiences who want their movie to be dumb and obvious, and that allows them to have it both ways because it's still a smarter movie on a visual level. Earlier we were talking about The Tribe, this movie that was made, you know, entirely with sign language. Now the first act of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes has no dialogue. It's sign language. That to me is a slightly more radical way to tell a story on a mass scale than, you know, Transformers or whatever other target you want to pick up. And so that's what's exciting to me about this kind of a movie is that hey, if you make a movie that has some smarter elements, it can still work for the audience that wants a stupid spectacle. Apparently, when he came in, Matt Reeves discovered when he was first pitching the project, he found a project that had skipped all the way to, you know, fully-fledged human, you know, human apes, if you like, who were fully communicative in, in, in the way that humans are. 
And he dis- didn't like that at all. He thought that was a bad idea. And he actually talked Fox into this approach, which I found fascinating as well and believable, although very um, there were some moments there where, where the orangutan is, is teaching kids, if you like, eight children, whatever they are, because they're all different species, really. That's the other thing. They've got, you know, apes and gorillas and chimpanzees and everything all mixed up. And and he's, and so there's like a blackboard with English on it, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, while they're trying to sort of, they, they do go to sort of laborious ends, but, but, they, but they use subtitles. Um, so um, it, it worked for me. I, there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief that you have to adopt there. Sure. I mean, it's it's more fantasy in some ways if you can get over that initial hump, you know, which, look, even gravity had its issues with credibility, so I don't think people should get too caught up in that. You know, the best thing about this movie is that it, it's be- its strongest lead performance is that of the ape, Caesar, Andy Serkis. If there was a real smart Oscar campaign going on, it would be to get that guy finally in the, in the mix. Am I wrong? The issues are myriad. One... The Academy is live action oriented, and if you think about that for a minute, you've got the actors branch, which is the dominant branch, bigger than any of the others, and they are very invested in live action acting. And they're, even if they don't, people in, in, who work um, in the movie business, people who are members of the Academy, are very sophisticated about how these films are made, and you do have voice acting, and Andy Serkis is the great practitioner. There's one suggestion that he will wind up getting some kind of special Oscar, which would be one solution, but it's not really the solution. Because it doesn't really make sense. I mean, he's, it's, a, it's a performance. It doesn't need to but be But it's ghettoized. a group performance. Part of the performance is, is, is done by animators, and they're done by animators at a very sophisticated level where they have algorithms that take his movements and enhance them and turn them into the, the scale and scope of a chimpanzee, in his case, Caesar. But it's also, you can see that he's acting, but they're working with his acting and they're enhancing it and rendering okay, it. Okay, but what about a curious case of Benjamin Button? You know, they, they didn't say that for Brad Pitt, did they? And that was definitely a digitized performance. No question about it. And because it was inside the context of a live-action movie, he was, and because there was some live action acting on his part, he was allowed to own that. And then they separated it out into a visual effects award. There will be a visual effects award, and I suspect that this movie has every chance of winning it because Weta is uh, and Joe Terry are still taking these advances to an incredible level. One of the things Matt wanted to do is go into the woods go into, you know, real uh, environments and have there's some incredible scenes where they're just swinging through the trees on a, on a vast scale in, you know, interacting in the, in nature. Uh, it's really uh, remarkable what they've done. Well, I mean, all of this makes me slightly more excited for a sophisticated point of conversation as award season starts to, to gear up. There, there can be a lot of obvious things that we can talk about. As, as somebody who mainly works as a critic, I'm more excited about talking, you know, sort of addressing the, the value of recognizing these performances that are outside the norm. And I couldn't agree more, but I think that the Academy needs to deal on so many different levels with uh, the different digital aspects of the craft. I mean, they've, they've added a digital production design component. You know, they've been giving cinematographers who function in the digital world awards lately. 
So, you know, they're coming around in certain categories, but this particular performance capture, one, part of the problem, by the way, no matter how good Dawn of, 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 the, of the Planet of the Apes is, it is still one of the summer popcorn genre movies. But the other, but in a, in a broader context, you know, it, it seems like this could be one of several really fascinating points of conversation for this year's award season. We've got Boyhood opening this week. Now, there was an Academy screening in New York for Boyhood just a couple of days ago. Our colleague Nigel Smith moderated the conversation afterwards. So they've seen that movie. And there's another one where it's like, could this, if, that, if that's a movie that can actually get a Best Picture nomination, in addition to, you know, maybe some performances or things of that nature. It'll be Patricia Arquette. It'll be writing. I'm praying that it's not just, you know, he needs to be uh, rewarded with, well, here's the thing. Uh, He's he's well-liked. He's a popular guy. He's always worked in a very small indie scale. I'm assuming this movie will be a hit. I'm assuming that it touches people the way it touches me. The emotions are very important here. The critics are high as a kite. On it, they're going to come back and reward it at the end of the year. Uh, I'm sure with a number of different things. Uh, I think it will make it'll win many things, and so I think it will be in the race. But it will be in the race because it's a, it's unique because it is a, an extraordinary, unique accomplishment that no one else could have done, would have done. That's what needs to be recognized, and I'm pretty sure the Academy will do that. Well, I guess what I'm hoping for is that a movie like that continues to be one that people are advocating for in the same way that they should be advocating for an Andy Serkis performance. You know, just some something to shake up the awards conversation so it doesn't feel so familiar. But Why they don't is- care if it's familiar, and they don't care what you think about that. It's really true. I the care. Academy. <laughs> I know you do, but 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 you're saying what should be or or what what must be. And, and what really it, what it comes down to is what all these, you know, uh, 6,000, you know, people finally want to do. I mean, they're going to do what they're going to do. They put 10, you know, as ma- you know, they put the new system together with as many as 10, depending on how many votes they all get and, you know, how arcane and crazy that is. You know, with the hope that maybe there would be more room for a wide range of movies, including big popular ones, by the way, of course, because they're worried about the ratings. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully there will be enough groundswell for this that, that your your wishes will come true. You know, I always tend to be out of sync with what 6,000 plus people think, whether they're Oscar voters or people buying tickets to a new release. But perhaps that's a good segue for us to talk about our picks for new releases. I mean, obviously, Boyhood all the way. It's a movie that works for a lot of people on a lot of different levels to a much more extreme degree than, say, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes or something like that. I mean, it's you can get it in a very simple way, but it, it, it's an incredibly sophisticated accomplishment, not only because it took 12 years to make, but because it's so unassuming in the way it deals with these very heavy themes. It, it makes you identify. It really does with real people. It's an ordinary people kind of movie, and I think that's its greatest strength. But also these actors just inhabit these characters so effortlessly, it seems. They just put them on every year for a long time, and we believe them. The other thing coming up uh, that I thought was an interesting question is how um, Weinstein Co. and their side company Radius, which is supposedly their their sort of new new digital arm, 
you know, in the same realm as Magnolia or IFC have handled Snowpiercer, and it's it's raising some interesting questions. You've written about it, and our, our box office guy, Tom Bergerman, has written about it. You, you seem to have a, a, a certain take, but w- wouldn't you say, though, that, that Weinstein is in a position to, having let the movie go to Radius, having let it become, you know, more of a VOD play and, and less of a theatrical play, um, there's some arguments that it could have done way, way, way better theatrically if it had just been gone, you know, given the full push by the Weinstein Co. And um, instead, it's it's actually suggesting another model. What what do you? What's your there's, well, okay. there's spin on this that they've been giving you? I'm not sure it's the truth. Well, and and we're going to revisit that a little bit. I think that. First of all, just to put this in context a little bit, Radius, which is a division of the Weinstein Company, released Snowpiercer on 250-odd screens in its second weekend of release. And this Friday, they're going to put it on VOD. It's doing pretty well. It made a little over a million dollars so far, and uh, you know we'll probably continue to increase It opened at very that. high numbers for, yes. for this kind of movie. And, and there was a lot of anticipation. number of theaters. But, you know, I guess that question to some degree is moot because it, the relationship with the Weinstein Company didn't go so well. Harvey wanted to change this movie, and so this was a natural solution. Um, you know, Radius had a relationship with the filmmaker going back to when they were at Magnolia. And, and so, you know, in that sense, I think it's it's paid off because, you know, that company got to do something sort of innovative by shrinking the window in between theatrical release and VOD release. And that's been really interesting. I think... The question is, how well is this movie going to do in the digital marketplace? And if it does well, we will probably know. But if it doesn't do well, we won't know because VOD numbers are not released to the public. Frankly, the, the biggest problem with the indie marketplace right now is that we, as, as journalists and the general public, just don't know when movies are successful or how successful they are, and that skews our understanding of the marketplace. So would Snowpiercer have done better if it got a traditional theatrical release from Weinstein and then wound up on VOD months later? It's impossible for us to know unless we have a more sophisticated understanding of how movies perform on VOD. Most recently, I was And we're saying, never going to know, and we're never going to know um, how successful a big commercial movie can be with this kind of model unless some, you know, enterprising companies do experiment with it. So I support that completely, by the way. Um, it's just more interesting to me that Harvey didn't see, you know, what a commercial movie he had on his hands and yeah. let it go to his sidearm and, and on some level appears to not be rooting for its success. You know, right. that's, that's, that's the that's what I find. Yeah, he, he kind of missed the boat on that one. But, you know, then again, he can also pretend to claim some victory here because it's sort of part of his company. And in that respect, I think the gamble of creating a division like Radius has paid off. They're going to spin us on this one, but I'm happy to be spun if it means moving the dial a little bit on the VOD conversation because some of the other competitors in this space, IFC or Magnolia, for example, you know, they do good work with these kinds of movies, but they aren't even pushing for some modicum of transparency when it comes to profits in this space. And no, so you roadside know, will, will, you know, uh, take a victory lap if, if, if they want to. Yeah. They're still talking about margin call and, and things right. like that arbitrage from, from right. years ago. Right. So, you know, I guess what I want to know is would a movie like boyhood, which I think everybody should see this movie and it could do really well in theaters, but 
on VOD, if that movie was available everywhere, you know, next week or this week, would that many more people be experiencing this amazing movie? They're, all right. The reason they're not going to do that. Well, first, there's several questions here. One is IFC is not historically that theatrically oriented anyway, um, except for small scale releases. Two, in this case, John Sloss, who's the guy who represents Link Letter and, and sold the movie, is in fact very invested, as you know, in, in this being an awards contender. So they're, they're, in, they're invested in a very long haul calculated awards push. So to put everything off for a long time, to keep it in theaters for a long time is in their interest, actually. In any case, I hope that people listening to our enthusiasm for Boyhood do make the trip to the movie theater and, and see it this weekend. And, you know, if, if for whatever reason you can't make it out, maybe it's just really nice outside, it'll stick around. So you'll have plenty of opportunities. And I hope that uh, people look to the opportunities that they have at their disposal and really uh, try to be more adventurous. I mean, Anne, you're out in Carlo Vivari and you spoke to Mel Gibson, but you saw a lot of other really interesting movies, right? It's a, it's a big world out there. Yes, indeedy. So let's let's wind this down with uh, a plea for people to just try to be more adventurous, to try to see things outside their safety zone, because uh, you know we're all in this together. I'm sure most of the people who listen to this podcast are already in that category. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.